0: This is Matthew 16, starting in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees.
1: Well, thank you very much uh, to JR, the elders, uh, for a warm welcome and uh, particularly great to get to know many of you yesterday uh, at the morning tea at the Rosario's house and at the beach. Uh, we even had members of the military with their band playing for us. That was, that was well organised, JR. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind. Um, it's my first time to Darwin and the Northern Territory and I was expecting warmth and certainly receive that. I understand it is warmer in other parts of the year, but what I will always remember is the warmth in hospitality and welcome from the church here. Uh, I bring greetings from our church in Sydney, Stanmore Baptist Church. We have been praying for you, Uh, been praying particularly for JR since I met him and the family about two years ago, two, two and a half years ago. And as I've learnt about the church plants and the work here as a church, we have been praying for you regularly, been praying for you this uh, this morning, praying in the service in Stanmore. And as I've interacted with you, there are many things about Emmaus Road and Stanmore that are very similar. I uh, spoke to my fellow elder last night and said, it's just a smaller version of Stanmore in, in Sydney, and the temperature's probably better up here, but... Um, it's a, it's a real delight to be with you. I've been looking forward to meeting the church here and so if you have your bibles please have them open to Matthew chapter 16 as we'll be looking at the theme of Jesus Christ building his church. Now, I don't know what is the most impressive building you have ever seen, children? Are there big buildings, tall buildings, very pretty buildings that you've seen that are impressive? Has there been anything that you've seen that you go, wow, that, that is amazing? As you think about that, come with me to where I was earlier in the year. I ha- happened to be in Europe with, on a family trip and I found myself in Rome, in Rome. And there's a very famous building in Rome called the Colosseum. And so we, if you went back 2,000 years... I imagined myself in Rome looking at this massive stadium that could seat 50,000, 60,000 people on multiple tiers, arches. They apparently had elevators, tunnels. It it was a complex and impressive building. I even learnt that they had sails. It was like a covered stadium so that the patrons would be shielded from the sun. But when I was there in January, it was a shadow Of its former past glory. It was in ruins. Yes, they were building it up again, but it was missing sections, things had fallen apart. If you go to DC, there are buildings like the Smithsonian, the Capitol building. If you came to Sydney, I know the... I know some of the Del Rosario kids, do you remember being in Sydney in those big, tall buildings in the apartments, looking out, saying, wow, these are very tall buildings. There's an opera house. There are tunnels. There's buildings you cannot see. There are tunnels in Sydney that go under the harbour. There's a very long tunnel that goes for 30 kilometres, six lanes wide, under my house. But the thing that's common about the Colosseum these big buildings in Sydney and other parts of the world, is one day they will be no more. They'll all be past their glorious days. Yes, modern engineering produces better materials, but they all have the same end because they are not lasting. There is only one building, one building that will stand the test of time, that will survive this creation, as it were, and it's not made out of bricks, it's not made out of concrete or timber, it's made out of people, people like you and me. It's made out of living stones, not dead materials. As I look around today, it's not a great company, it's, uh, it's not an impressive group of people. And don't be offended, I would say the same to my home church in Stanmore. We're not impressive in the eyes of the world. We're not significant, not powerful. But I want us to remember today that you are part of the most spectacular building project ever in history. This small church in Darwin is part of the church that Jesus Christ is building. And in Matthew 16, Jesus declares he will build a church. He will build something special, his glorious bride. And so this morning I want us to think what's your view of church? Are you part of the church? Have you signed on with the master builder with the project that he is building? This morning we'll look at uh, five things. I know they say 3-point sermons are good, but being more reformed, five is a good number. We'll see that there is a context of a confession. Secondly, there is a commitment to build. The third thing we'll see is there is a call and a charge to advance. A commission to keep on building is number four. And then finally, we'll look at some challenges for us today. But before we do that, please join me in praying for the help of God's Holy Spirit, because as we've just sung... Unless the Lord builds his house, we all labour in vain. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence acknowledging that by nature in our sin, we deserve no good thing from you. And yet in your dealings with us, you have been gracious and kind. We pray that as we gather to sit under your word, You would send your spirit to illumine the scriptures to us, to to open our eyes, open our hearts, to receive good things from your hand. We pray, O Lord, we would see new things, things perhaps we've forgotten. We would be challenged. Perhaps, Lord, we need comfort this day. And we know that your word by your spirit can do all of these things. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come amongst us And have your way with us. Help us to see the glory of your church, the bride of Christ, and see our privileged role in that. Help us this day, Lord, keep us attentive. Help us all, both preacher and hearer alike, to be faithful. And we pray and ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so firstly, we're going to start with confusion to a clear confession. Let's read verse 13 together. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? If you went to the harbour in Darwin, perhaps if you went further down south to Palmerston or even further south to Catherine, if you asked the man or the woman, the child in the street, who is Jesus Christ? What would they say? Some might say he's a figment of your imagination. A historical figure. A good example, maybe a teacher, someone important. In Jesus' day, when he asked this question of his disciples, they responded in verse 14, not dissimilarly. They gave a range of options. They say, could he be John the Baptist?" He'd just been beheaded. So has John the Baptist been raised from the dead? Or could it be another prophet that was once powerful and now with us again? Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the other great mouthpieces of God? There's uncertainty, there's confusion. Who is Jesus? And that's not dissimilar to today. But then Jesus turns the screws and puts a spotlight on these men and says, but who do you say that I am? The world is confused about me, but you've spent time with me. After all this time, after all your interactions with me, who do you say that I am? That's a good question for for us to consider today. Boys and girls, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Well, in verse 16, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here, Peter comes out with something that is crystal clear. You are the Christ. Now, The Christ is a a, a title, it means anointed one. Boys and girls, you remember in the Old Testament they would anoint special people with with oil? Just hold on for that for a moment. Do do you remember who they used to anoint? There were three three kings, thank you. They, They anointed King David. Other groups of people they anointed? Yes? Saul was another king. Yeah, they anointed a lot of kings. Every king was anointed. But then they also anointed prophets and priests. Oh, he beat you to it. Braden's always like that, isn't he? He's always stealing the punchline. Oh. Here, Peter, confesses that Jesus is like these men. Prophets, priests, and kings, but... In the Old Testament, they couldn't handle, they couldn't multitask. They could only do one, perhaps two of those jobs at a time, but none could do all three. When Jesus, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the anointed one, you are, in Hebrew, that would be the Messiah. And not only that, you're not just the son of man, which is reference an Old Testament reference, but you are the son of the living God. And this speaks of his authority, his right to rule. Now, we know many things about Peter. Uh, was Peter a smart man? Was he an educated man? Was he uh, more advanced than all the others? Some might say, if you know a little bit about Peter, he had uh, he had this propensity to have his foot in his mouth, like he would should often more engage his mind before he opens his lips. But here we're reminded that Peter, he didn't work harder. He wasn't an academic. Why did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ? In verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, or happy are you, Simon bar Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Why is he blessed? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Oh, Peter, even though you disappoint in so many ways, you know something so precious and special because God the Father has opened your eyes. This is a token of grace. To know God is not of our doing. Here we're reminded that God is the first mover. He's the one that takes the initiative to send the Spirit. We recall John 3, the Spirit moves where he wants and does as he pleases. And Peter and others have had their eyes and their hearts open to know who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He's not just a prophet, not like those other prophets. God's church will be based on a clear understanding, a clear confession of who Jesus Christ is. A church isn't based on wishy-washy ideas, gimmicks, programs, or even personalities of your church leaders. It has to be built and based on Jesus Christ and a clear understanding of who he is. He is that final prophet some of you will hear the echo in Hebrews 1 of God has spoken in past through these prophets and through other means. But in these days, he's spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest who offers up himself as a perfect sacrifice. You know, the, those Levitical priests offered up sacrifices daily and after job was done, they would die and be replaced but jesus continually intercedes for us today and he is the king of kings i know we can be disappointed in government but he is the king of kings and lord of lords and he has the strength to conquer all his and our enemies chief of all sin and death he's the one where all creation bows their knee in revelation and we join with all those saints jesus is the messiah the Christ, the Son of God. He is the foundation, the chief cornerstone of the building. So it starts off with confusion to a clear confession. Well, what's Jesus going to do with this? Jesus is committed to building his church. Now, I don't know what the planning laws are like or anyone done renovations. I don't know what it's like in the States. In Sydney, it's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. You just want to build a house. Something simple, but you've got to get these plans, these surveys, you've got to dig, you've got to get this report, that report submitted, and then they want more information, and they red tape after blue tape, after, in our part of the city, there's lots of colourful tape, let's put it that way. Uh, it's It's an ordeal. It can be absolutely awful when you want to build something, renovate, refurbish, remodel something. But in verse 18, when Jesus says he will build his church, I tell you, he's not asking anyone for any permission. He's not waiting for any approvals. He's not waiting for things to line up just as others would have it be. When Jesus says he's going to build his church, there will be No unexpected delays, although we may think it's slower than it ought to be. It will be all according to his perfect timing and plan. When he says in verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, of course, if you're familiar with this verse, there are many interpretations of it. There are abuses of this, this verse by the Roman Catholic Church. But I do believe that Peter is part of what Jesus will be building his church on. And when you think of Peter's role, particularly in the book of Acts, he is the first among equals. He does bind, he does loose, but we understand he is part of the foundation of the church, along with the prophets, but Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. Let's spend a moment what Jesus is building and what he's not. Jesus is not building a political movement. He's not wanting to replace the powers that be either in Israel or Rome. He's not wanting to replace the Senate, as it were. He's not creating a social enterprise to build economical housing or to feed the poor, to help refugees, although they are all good things. Nor is he building physical infrastructure. I know for many of us, church is like a cathedral, sandstone walls. He's building ecclesia, church. That's that's the word. And incidentally, you may not know this, but the word church or ecclesia is only used twice in the Gospels. It's used almost a hundred and twenty times in. The rest of the New Testament, but only twice. And this is one of the times in the Gospels. Ecclesia means called out once, called out from the world, a people called out from the world of darkness, and brought together. As J.R. was reading 1 Peter 2, and it says, You were once not a people. And there was that awkward pause. But now you are a people. We were called out from darkness into marvellous light. We once had hearts of stone and they were replaced with hearts of flesh. We are living stones growing up into him. Yeah, the word church, recklessly, is used 114 times and it's two main ways it's been used. In the New Testament I don't know if you're aware of this sometimes and in this passage this is the focus it is speaking about the one universal global church Christ has one church one bride one people one nation that's not a political statement This includes saints, past, present, and future from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Do you know? One day we will be banqueting and feasting. There are mugs out there of famous reformers. I can never know which one's which. I think that's Calvin, right? You'll be able to ask Calvin why he wrote this on that. Or with the Apostle Paul. Or with Abraham. What was it like when you were on that mountain in the thicket called upon to sacrifice your son. How could you do that? There will be a time when all the saints will be gathered together. We'll be gathered with saints, not just across time, but across space. You will see brothers and sisters from Africa, Asia, South America, Europe, North America, from every state and territory of Australia That's the one universal church, and that's one way ecclesia is used. But the dominant usage, the majority of times ecclesia is used in the Bible, it is to speak of distinct local churches, such as Emmaus Road. There's a handful of times it speaks of one church, and there are many times it speaks of many churches. And if if you've never thought about that, just turn to Galatians 1 with me, just very briefly. Galatians 1. Just read the opening verses, and you may not have picked up on this before. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who were with me. Paul is writing with his band of brothers, and who does he write to? What's it say? To the churches, the churches, plural, in Galatia. There's not just one church, there are many churches. You will read the same in 2 Corinthians 8. You don't have to turn there, but he talks about the churches in Macedonia, the churches, plural. And if you're familiar with Revelation, he writes to seven churches. So we see that church is used of a universal, global church, but also it speaks of churches like brothers and sisters here gathered at Emmaus Road. How much love does Christ have to the church in Philippi or the church in Ephesus. You know, he greatly loves them. Well, this church, and if you're visiting, your home church, that is greatly loved of God. God is very committed to this local church as much as he's committed to the local churches we read of in the New Testament. But in Matthew 16... The main point of Jesus' statement is Jesus is committed to building his church universal. Because I would love to visit the church in Corinth. I'd love to meet the descendants of Euodia and Syntyche in Philippi. Maybe use their pulpit. But I don't know where that church is now. Because the reality is some churches come This church was born. Some churches go. These churches are no more. But the one church of Jesus Christ continues to grow and grow and keep on growing. Because when Jesus rescues someone, gives them a new heart and makes them a living stone and adds that brick, as it were, to the building of his universal church, that ain't going backwards. It's always moving forwards. Although each local congregation may have its ups and downs, that one grand, majestic, beautiful church of Jesus Christ will keep on going on and on and on. We know biblically sometimes work is slow. Sometimes it's going gangbusters. Don't you recall in Acts 2 when Peter preached 3,000 were added to the church? That's Acts 2, but then you turn to Acts 8 and Paul, before he had his experience, he came and he came not to build up the church, but he came to persecute the church. And what's it say about the church in Jerusalem? It was scattered. It was scattered. There are good days for church. There are bad days for local church. There are in season and out of season But you know what happened in Jerusalem, of course? They were scattered, and it says they went to different parts, and then later, I think it's about Acts 12, you read that some of them get to Antioch. And in Antioch, they've reassembled and created a new church, and that church has gone on and done different things. So maybe if you were a Christian in Jerusalem at the time, you say, wow, we were once 3,000, but now we're a handful. What's going on here? Is God faithful to his promises? The answer is always yes and amen. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that you are part of something massive? There are times we will be naturally discouraged. You may even feel like giving up on church. Why are we here? What are we doing? But the promise in Matthew 16 is Christ is building the church, whether we like it or not. Whether we feel like it's going well or not, Jesus is always for his people, always for his church. And that's a promise we can bank on. Third point, and more briefly, there is a call to advance. It's very easy to be discouraged. Everywhere you look, I, I, every Thursday morning, I get to teach at a local public school in inner Sydney, it's, uh, you walk in and the notice board, there's lots of Noahic covenant signs, lots of rainbows everywhere. And in our streets, that's, that's the area we live in. But that's where God has placed us. We were praying this morning for certain legislation and legal discussions, which is very discouraging. Why would you not afford protection for the most innocent of lives? Why would you murder the innocent in the womb? That's not just out there. I mean, every streaming service, Disney, Netflix, Stan, get all sorts of unhelpful things through that. And if you know a little bit about church history, you think once upon a time the church had influence in this country. It had a seat at the table, Lawmakers and politicians would speak to churches about what our views were, what what might be helpful, but that's not the case these days. We once had a seat at the table, but now it seems like we're not even afforded the crumbs. And in this context, we may think the church is always being attacked and we're on the back foot, we're being defensive. And so we're careful with our words. In a group of strangers, we may be embarrassed or ashamed or not sure to identify as a Christian, although everyone seems to be able to identify as whatever they want to be because evil is now called good and good called evil. But that's the world we live in. And so I want us to see something in verse 18. And kids, as we look at this, I want you to think is a gate you know what a gate is? Is a gate a defensive weapon or an offensive weapon? Do you use a gate to go forward or to go to protect against? Okay, let's read verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the, wait for it, gates, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Boys and girls, a gate... Used to attack or to defend? What do you think? To defend. (laughs) A gate is to defend. Who owns these gates? Boys and girls, look at the passage. Who's on the defensive end? The gates of hell. The gates of hell. Well, it's actually a technical phrase to talk about. uh, It's a picture of death. It's a picture of death. The gates of Hades, gates of hell. It's a picture of death. And this is a picture of where to go forward and even death will not be able to withstand the power of Jesus building his church. When we go forth proclaiming the gospel like the Red Sea parting, death will make way for gospel progress. So the point of this is sometimes we think, we're in church and we have to put the walls up, the defences up and guard the gates. That's not this picture. When Jesus is building his church, we're going forward and gates are being broken. People are being saved. People are being added to the kingdom. We're not on the defence. We're on the, they do this in football, American football. Offensive, defensive, I don't know. They don't seem fit enough to play an entire game. It's, anyway, sorry, my friends. I know you're muscular and you could do damage to me, so I'll, I'll pause there. I'll pause there. The gates of hell symbolize death. Gospel is preached. People will be saved and churches will be built up. We're called to advance, not to retreat. And in our day and age, when there's so many political and social pressures to retreat, it's one of the challenges we have to overcome. We need to remember those gates are going down. But then there's a very strange verse in verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to say, shh, don't, don't tell anyone about this. To tell no one that he was the Christ. And this brings us to our fourth point. The Great Commission is to go and keep on building. Just turn with me to the end of Matthew. I know that J.R. is preaching through Matthew, so when you get to this passage, you just say, take this week off, we've, we've, we've dealt with it. In Matthew 28, Jesus, in verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's very different to what we just read in verse 20 of chapter 16. Chapter 16, Jesus says, shh, don't, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone just yet. But at the end of Matthew, it says, go shout it off from the, from the rooftops. Go tell everyone, anyone who'll hear. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that in Matthew 16, he has not yet suffered to the point of death. He has not been fully humiliated. But when he has died... When he is buried, he fulfills what is required in the law on our behalf to take the penalty for our sins. That is the fulfilment of his humiliation. That is the lowest of the low. But we sang that first song, Christ is risen indeed. Brothers and sisters, we do not come to worship at a tomb, at a gravesite. We come to worship a risen Saviour. And in Matthew 28, when he says, "Shouted from the rooftops. He's saying, all authority, now that I have fulfilled what is required of me, I am now being exalted. I am now going to be recognised as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Now, go tell the world. There was a time to be silent, but now is not that time. He's been raised in resurrection power. Go into all the world. Go into... The 150,000 people in Darwin, the remote regions, the rest of the country and the rest of the world. And sometimes it's very daunting to think of mission, to think of beyond ourselves when things are so small. But when Jesus speaks these words in Matthew 28, how many people does he have around him? about a third of the people in this room. A third of the people. He's speaking to 12. And if you know a little bit about those guys, they didn't have, well, sometimes you, you do question, but they weren't the best and the brightest. But it's in our weakness, and sometimes in our timidity, and in our failings, in our stammering of the lips, that is when our Lord and Saviour is most glorified. Because it's not of us, it's all of Him. Can you just imagine in previous wars, trench warfare, World War I, Western Front, sitting in those trenches, you've been there for days on end, keeping your head down because bullets are flying overhead, donning gas masks because mustard gas comes over. But you've heard rumours. You've heard there's going to be a counter-offensive. They whisper the command down the line. When the whistle goes, we've got to go. You might feel scared and anxious... You may feel overwhelmed. The odds are stacked against you. you may even ask, why are you here? But in the providence of God, when nothing, absolutely nothing happens by chance. God has placed you here. God has placed me where he's placed me for a season. But he says, the whistle has blown. We've got to go. We've got to go, and it's not in our own strength. As we come out of the trenches, we may stumble. But note what Jesus says in the end. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oh, friends, that's, that's great assurance. That's great assurance. I have three boys that they're a bit older now. But I remember when they were younger, they might be afraid or scared to do something, whatever it might be, ride a bike, jump a fence, go into deeper water. Well, what gives them great assurance if Daddy goes with them, if Daddy holds their hand? That's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of trust. And so, friends... Yes, the task is large. It is significant. It is overwhelming. There are many reasons not to go when the whistle is blowing. And every time I hear or read Matthew 28, I hear that whistle. We can never forget Jesus' promise. He will never abandon us. He's always with us. He is by our right hand. And sometimes our friends abandon us. Sometimes they fail us. They disappoint us. We can never say that about Jesus. We can never. There is a great picture of victory because Christ is committed to building his church. The fifth point is really just some application, some challenges and some consequences. So let's try to wrap this up. What's Jesus start with? In verse 13, who do you say that I am? He asked of his disciples, what do the people say? But then he turns it to them, and the question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? This is not a, by the way, um, sort of a theological or church bingo session. Where you can just throw out words, is Emmanuel, is this, is that, and that. I, I liken it more to those situations where I had some, some pretty horrible scenes where Christians in other parts of the world are challenged with is Jesus Lord? And the answer to that is not an academic test. If Jesus is Lord, you will die like your Lord. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your Lord and Saviour? Are you prepared to die for that confession? And God forbid any of us would ever be put into that situation, but let's dial it down a little. In the workplace, is Jesus your Lord? Are you prepared to be known as a Christian? Are you prepared not to laugh at things that Jesus wouldn't laugh at? Are you prepared to avert your eyes? Because if Jesus is with you, you'd you'd never do that. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he your prophet that speaks to you daily? Is he your king that rules over you? Is he your priest that you come to because he's offered up himself for you? Oh, friends, don't, don't be like the others in the community in Jesus' day. He says, oh, I'm not sure who he is. He could be this, he could be that. And even as a Christian, even you say, oh, I'm born again believer. I, I trust in Jesus. But the way we go through life is Jesus is a bit of an advisor. He's one of many counsellors. My workplace wants this, my bank manager wants that. Is he your Christ? Do you know Christ? And does Christ know you? That's a really important question. Who do you say Jesus is? Secondly, if you are his... If you are Jesus, if you belong to his flock, to his ecclesia, his church, what are you building? Oh, there are many things to to build. There are many things to build. You can uh, build a career. You can study, get degrees, get qualifications, you can get jobs, you can go for promotions, you can work really hard to ensure that you provide for your family and that they're good things. And in part, we all do that. But is that your primary building project? Or maybe it's not a career, maybe it's not money, it's just a reputation. You're not much for money, but you just want to have a good reputation amongst people. You want to be the likeable guy, the nice guy, the, the pleasant woman, the one that doesn't rock the boat. But maybe it is material comfort. Maybe it's the pleasures of this life. What, what, what are we building? If I could put it another way, and this is one way to test it, is what do you want on that on your tombstone. When you get buried, when well, we'll all get buried unless the Lord returns. Someone's going to write something about you. If you had your pick, what would those words say? That'll give you some sense of what we're building. And some of those are good things. To be a loving father or mother or, Wife or husband, they're, they're good things. But you know, in our day, the, the subtlety is that even good things can be, become God things. They can become idolatrous, and we, we just have to be careful. If, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go to Matthew 10. He just rightly, Jesus rightly orders our relationships there. Him first, Him first in all things. But what are we building Here's the thing whatever we build, whether it's tall skyscrapers, careers, superannuation, pension funds, whatever it might be, they will all disappear. They they all will vanish. But Christ's kingdom will last forever. Nothing we do for the Lord is in vain. We might witness and not see fruit, it is not in vain. We might try to disciple our children, try to do the hard work of local church. It may not go as we plan it, but like I say, it's going according to God's plans. What's it say? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Brothers and sisters, let's remind one another regularly Although it is good to provide for our families, it is good to work hard, these are are creation mandates. We, We are to provide. But it's all subservient to Christ's kingdom because it is only that that lasts forever. Third application challenge is, are you concerned about the wider church? Are you concerned? Do you pray for brothers and sisters in this city, despite them not ticking all our theological boxes, perhaps being of a different tradition. Because we know we only have one father. And I know personally in my family, when, the brother, when, when my kids start mistreating one another, as, as a parent, you hate that, don't you? It displeases you. And so it is with our father. If there are genuine believers in this city, we ought to consider them brothers and sisters. They might do things with babies that we don't do and all the rest of it. And they might do things with parts of their body. We don't, it doesn't, look. They love Jesus. If they can say Jesus is the Messiah, they've repented of their sins, we ought to love them. And not just across this city, across this land abroad. We pray for you regularly in our church and we pray for other churches because if you hurt, we hurt. If you rejoice, we rejoice. Yes, we are part of local bodies, but we are one part, part of one body where Christ is the head. So we ought to have a concern for brothers and sisters across this city, across this world, And are you committed to the local church, to this local church? Because whilst we can talk about the universal church, time and space, in his mercy, just as we read in Galatia, in Corinth, and they talked about Macedonia, it has a footprint. It has a local church membership. And as we build a local church, here we are contributing to a universal church. But before we join the master builder in that building project, we need to make sure we ourselves have Jesus as our saviour and our Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Let's pray for God's grace. Father, we are thankful that you are so committed to building your church that you sent your one and only son to be born of a woman, to suffer to the point of death, death on a cross. We thank you that by his death, his life, death and resurrection, all those who know him, who trust him, who put their faith exclusively upon him and him alone, we are united to him that we can have great confidence that our sins are forgiven that we are as it were part of the team part of the body part of your bride we thank you that although you could just save Darwin without us lifting a finger you could save this nation you could save the world You have entrusted to us the great privilege of being co-laborers with you. Oh Lord, help us to take that seriously. Help us to rely upon you for grace. Forgive us for when we are indifferent, when we are distracted by other things. Cause us to turn our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and see how wonderfully glorious he is in the church is. Oh Father, I do pray for this church here in Darwin. And what I pray for them here, I do pray for other churches as well. That you would, by your grace, make them more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You would mature them, equip them for every good work. That you would give them strength for the task and give them a confidence and a hope in the future. And Lord, a trust in you that although times may be difficult, may be hard, they would always look to you. But Lord, sometimes it's hard when things are going well to trust in you and we trust in ourselves and so deliver them from that. Oh, Father, we thank you. It doesn't matter what's in our bank account, where we live, how old we are, what degrees or degrees we don't have. If we are part of your church, Lord, we have an eternal hope and a future. And for this, we thank you. in